Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts like us examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller, North by Northwest. One stinking minute at a time! Actually, that's one minute of screen time per episode? Yes. I'd love to do one-minute shows. We'll just do... We'll just do live commentary track for a minute. My name is Curtis Blaze, and pretty far out, on the north leg, and awfully high, is my cordial co-host, Jason Hummel. Jason! It would please me if you would think of me as being along in this journey, if only in spirit. <laughs> we are the hosts of the Better Off Dead Minute, the podcast that examines the movie Seven Steve Holland. <laughs> one Better Off Dead Minute at a time. Join us now, won't you, as we unpack Minute 126 of the Hitchcock film... North by Northwest, already in progress. But all I'm saying is that I think when he said it would please me if you would think of me as being along on this journey, he's trying to set up a situation for her where as she's getting thrown out of the plane, she's thinking, oh, that son of a person. <laughs> son of a biscuit. Son of a bird box. <laughs> What do you think? Is he, does he just hate her that much? That's his motivation? Because when I first watched her, I was like, oh, he's being nice. <laughs> She's about to die. <laughs> well, and, and here's the other thing, too. I never realized he wasn't going with until just now. Yeah. You knew all along he was? No, it, it kind of clicked with me there, too. But, yeah, it makes sense for him to be so mad then in the earlier scene if he's not going with them. He's not even going with them. So what is going on down at the plane then later? He's just there to say goodbye? Is he not getting picked up by the CIA then? Is he not afraid that he's going to be in trouble as well? I mean, he's into this as much as Philip is. Yeah. He's been with Philip everywhere. You know, that's a good question. Do they know that the CIA is after him? Is there any evidence in this movie anywhere that tells them that they know the CIA is there? Because they've been fooled by the CIA's fake person thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is it they know the CIA is involved or they just think she's going to double cross them? Well, let's untwist this a little bit. Let's go back and look at scenes in the movie and, and really put this together. Let's start with on the train. Oh, wait, let's just... Do you mind if we kind of... Go ahead. Go through the movie? Okay, so just keep in mind, no talking while the movie is playing. That way we can edit out all movie sound and not get in trouble. Wow, I never noticed that before. This guy has the... This guy is playing hard of hearing. Or he's actually hard of hearing. They sound German. People laugh in the car. You know, I don't really see this sort of looking down on the scene angle a lot in other filmmakers. This is kind of a Hitchcock thing. Yeah, it's usually like two shots. Okay, so I think I've seen enough of the earlier movie to be able to say that, yes, they do know that the CIA is after them. Do you concur? Yeah. They're talking about contacts, blah, 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 blah. They're talking about playing games, all of that stuff. So, then... They know the CIA is is playing games with them. Yep. And the CIA is after them. And Leonard is not going along. And neither is the housekeeper. What's her name? Do you remember? Anna. Anna. Leonard and Anna are not going along. Yet the CIA is after them. So now they know that she is CIA because of the fake gun and all that stuff. Yeah. And now that just gives more evidence that that, uh, Roger is really George Kaplan. Right? Yeah, okay. in, their, in their minds, yeah. In their minds, yeah. I'm trying to see it from their point of view here. So, why wouldn't Leonard be going with? They haven't talked about any alternative plans for him. Did They talk later about the about Anna meeting up with him later, right? Yeah. 
We talked about getting her out of the country and her husband, I think. Yep, that's right. So what's to become of Leonard? I guess we can't know this minute. <laughs> this <laughs> the dialogue. Okay, so we're at, we're at second 25 of minute 126. Leonard and Philip are talking about the, the plane landing while she is discovering the matchbook and looking at it and discovering that she has a note from, from Roger. And what's that note say again? Do you remember? They're on to you. And then she snaps that matchbook shut with her gigantic hand. <laughs> yeah, great, great reaction. It's like she's like shocked with static electricity or something when she opens it. It's like, ah! But it's fun, you know, they didn't have... At no time was there a special effect where they showed the, the plane landing. We had one shot of a runway, and then they just described the plane landing. Yeah. And then the plane is there. Saving some money. A little trick to remember. <laughs> Like, oh, Hitchcock did it. <laughs> I'll just describe the plane landing. Sometimes I wish George Lucas would have done that instead of showing every spaceship ever landing <laughs> every single time. How are we going to know they got down to the planet if we don't show the spaceship landing? <laughs> yeah, that's, it's kind of a low-budge thing, is the, yeah. It's like with uh, Battle Beyond the Stars where uh, John Sayles was told, don't do any real, like, takeoffs or landings. Just have them in space. He was told that? Yeah. So bring our listeners up to speed. Who's John Budge? <laughs> no budget, no. John Sales. Okay, who's John Sales? He's a very great screenwriter and director who started out doing uh, B-movies for Roger Corman. Was uh, Battle Beyond the Stars a Roger Corman flick? Yes. Oh, man. I just keep discovering movies I love from that guy. Everybody talks crap about Roger Corman, and I'm just like, well, Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah. <laughs> I watched that movie seven times when I was a kid, once a year, when it was on TV. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. And it's it's not just a Star Wars ripoff. It stands on its own as actually a fun science fiction movie. Well, and that movie has like its special effects shots. Either it created them, and some some other movie ripped them off, or some other movie made those special effects shots, and then they ripped them off. Oh, uh, Corman reused a lot of his uh, effects shots. Yeah, because there was a there was a movie that had the spaceship Nell as a sentient. Mom or something? No. And, and there was some kid lost in space? Yeah. Do you remember what that was called? Uh, no. Because I remember I was watching it and, and those things, all of those effect shots were, were reused in this other movie. Yeah. This kid had a very 70s haircut. So he was told specifically not to show things landing and taking off. Right. He could have a whole movie of that. Like, oh. He could have an international, an international spy thriller not actually have to have any effects. I'm going to Rome! The plane is landing! I must go. Do it as like a drawing room play. <laughs> right. That's not a bad idea for making a movie. We should view Honestly Abe, the sequel, as a drawing room. <laughs> so when Eve says that she thinks she left her earrings upstairs, Leonard and Philip exchange a very interesting glance. A very interesting look. They look worried. Do you think they know she's full of it? Or are they just generally suspicious because... They know she's CIA. Do I that right, by the way? CIA, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I think it is probably they think, uh-oh, does she, have another, does she have a real gun with real bullets? I'm watching her go upstairs because, well, Philip's like, hey, you check her out. And Leonard's like, eh. <laughs> this movie wasn't colorized, right? Right. No, I think it was probably Technicolor. If you look at her hands, her nail beds are the exact same color as her, as her skin. Most people are sort of more pink. Yeah. But her nail beds are as orange as, as her skin is. There's no there's no difference there. Almost as if she was hand-colored, 
by Ted Turner. <laughs> if you're watching along at home, pause at minute 30 or second 36 in minute 126 and just appreciate how tiny those matches are in her giant hand. <laughs> okay, enough about that. 1959, Jason. Yes. Who are some other actors of the time that could have been cast? Do we actually have any background on, you know, Cary Grant got the role, but it could have been that guy that plays Matt Dillon? <laughs> James Arness. James Arness. Wow, he really, really dwarfed those uh, two henchmen with yeah. the gun. He was, he's like six foot seven, I think. I think Jimmy Stewart was actually up for it. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. But he had a prior commitment. Well, according to IMDb, <laughs> Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant to play the role. But James Stewart was up for it. Oh, James Stewart assumed Hitchcock was going to cast him after Hitchcock described some of the plot. Yeah. But Hitchcock was actually all about Cary Grant. Oh, that is interesting. Okay. So, again, this is according to IMDb. Grain of salt time. <laughs> <laughs> the story goes... And, you know, we're at minute 126, so this story's probably been told about 15 average times, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Already, for the listeners. Um, that Hitchcock told the story to Jimmy Stewart. And then Jimmy Stewart assumed that he was going to be cast as Roger. And was very anxious about it. And Hitchcock didn't want to reject him. Once Jimmy assumed that he was playing it, he didn't want to tell Jimmy Stewart no. Like, oh, I don't really want you. So what he did was he just delayed filming the film until Jimmy Stewart got another role somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I said, oh, what a, what a shame. Oh, oh, I guess I'll cast Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I could see him in the role, but it would be a little weird. Why would it have been weird? Um, I don't know, just Cary Grant brought his Cary Grantness to it. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of, this movie does stink of Cary Grant. I'm kind of running out empty here for this scene, Jason. Tell me about, uh, tell me what you know about wardrobe for Eve. <laughs> what I know? Hmm. I just know that it looks like it was sprayed on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shrink-wrapped almost. Yeah, um, Hitchcock always had those, like, really curve-hugging dresses on his, uh, female protagonists. <laughs> God, that is crazy. I'm just gonna do, let's do the needle drop scene. I just read this piece of trivia. That's got me. That's got me weirded out. I'm just gonna needle drop anywhere. Tell me if you notice anything. What is the same in every one? Notice anything here? The suit. Not just the suit. Cary Grant. He's always on the left side of the screen, facing right. Ah. All the way through the movie. Uh, it's the old get my good side. Anywhere you go, he's on the left side. Oh, look at this. Okay, check this out. Watch him walk up the steps. He had to film this from a hidden spot across the street. He had to gorilla film this because he couldn't get permission. Oh, yeah. Hitchcock. So he just has Cary Grant out in the street. He just has Cary Grant out there. Look at Cary Grant. Watch this guy right here. This guy's like, holy sh**, it's Cary Grant! <laughs> Another person they were thinking of was Gregory Peck. Yeah. I think he would have been too serious. Gregory Peck? Yeah. I couldn't see him playing a comic drunk scene. Yikes. James Mason suffered a severe heart attack shortly after filming him. Breathless in the Northwest Direction CIA story. Yeah, CIA story. Uh, that would make you think it's a totally different kind of movie. Yeah, it would. You would be looking for more of a like an I was a communist for the FBI kind of flick. I don't even think this would be a classic movie if it was called CIA story. Yeah, isn't that weird? 
North by Northwest is a strange title. Yeah. Because it's not really that north. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's not really that northwest. I mean, I you know, it's weird that the Black Hills are kind of considered being out west, kind of. Mm-hmm. I don't really think of it as too far west. I mean, it's a 10-hour drive from here. I don't know, Wall Drug is 454 miles from my house. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're almost there. Had it been called a CIA story, would that have made any sense? They don't talk about the CIA much until almost the end of the movie. Right. They do talk about playing games and agents and meeting up with people. Yeah. But they don't specifically talk about the CIA. And it's weird for people our age because do you think of the CIA as being a 50s thing? Think of the FBI, right? Yeah. Yeah, usually, yeah, from the 50s back, it was like the FBI and then... Right, it was, you know, Ness. Yeah, yeah, the Untouchables. You, you think of CIA as being a full-on Cold War kind of thing. Right. Well, and that's the thing. 59, we're talking four years after the Korean War gets over. Yeah. Where we were proxy fighting the communists. So we were in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah. Heck, the Cold War was hot occasionally. You know, we were fighting China through North Korea. We were fighting Russia through Vietnam, you know, shortly after this movie was made. Yeah. God, 59, were there already French people? Were the French already in Vietnam? They were. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So it was it was Cold War time, but... Did we think of spies? Like, what what were the spy movies? Spy movies were... Were there really a lot of spy movies about the Cold War back in the 50s? Are I, we just, I don't think so. Are we just young and dumb and don't know? Because spy movies kind of... You know, like The Man Who Knew Too Much. What was that? That was a Cold War spy movie, right? Yeah. And that was back... Well, depending on which version. So Hitchcock was clearly aware of the, of the spy games style of movies. Yeah. So it must have been a thing. Yeah. But not as much of a thing as it would become in the 60s. I mean, 60s was just like boom. And then that's, of course, when James Bond came out and that was all about the Cold War. And, well, it was Cold War and it was also like worldwide criminal organizations. Yeah. But yeah, another thing that why this movie seems Bond-like is the cordial menace of the villains. Well, it makes you wonder, you know, were people cordial to each other in real life? It was probably just a lot of thugs. I mean, in real life, it was probably just a lot of thugs. Yeah. There weren't people facing off with each other and, you know, being nice on the surface while they're readying the shark tank. <laughs> it's almost as if those were, like, metaphors for the way diplomacy works or something. Hey, Google. When was the first 007 book written? According to Wikipedia. So Hitchcock was aware of, possibly, James Bond yeah. in 1958 when he filmed this. Because the first James Bond book came out in 1951. Yeah. And there, I think there had already been like a teleplay version of Casino Royale. Are you talking like, the David Niven thing? No. no oh. An earlier version. Oh. I've never heard of it. Yeah. It was like a teleplay version of it. Is that more in line with the modern Casino Royale? Well, it was <laughs> closer to the book. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. The Niven Casino Royale is not on any map anywhere <laughs> You're James Bond and all. It's just its own universe. I refuse to accept that. That is James Bond. <laughs> it is canon. <laughs> I was so confused when I watched that as a kid. <laughs> They're calling him, you know, Bond. I'm just like, what is going on here? It's like, you know, I'm just a little kid anyway. I think I think the movies are cool. I'm like, yeah, Goldfinger, cool. <laughs> and then he's like... Why is Inspector Clouseau in this movie? <laughs> no, I, it wasn't even that much. 
I had no idea about the Pink Panther at the time. I was just like, he has a toque, a sleeping toque. <laughs> Where's the martinis and suits? <laughs> so in one other minute, you were talking about seeing a behind the scenes where the screenwriter said that he was writing the characters gay. Yeah. Martin Lando claims that he made the decision on his own to play Leonard is gay and in love with Philip Van Dogg. Uh, the subtext is obviously there. I mean, it's it's subtle, but it's there. He got a lot of crap for that. According to IMDb, he he was he made it known he was going to play the character as gay, and people were telling him not to because then he'd be, you know, then everyone would think he was weird and bisexual. Yeah. Very bold choice. So after Landau said he was going to play gay, that's when the screenwriter was like, well, I'll write the woman's intuition line in there. Hmm. People will know it's gay, but not in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> in Boise, Idaho, they'll just go, what does it mean by that? <laughs> Woman's intuition. You can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, or at the main site, HitchcockMinute.com. You can also find us at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook, and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. Don't forget that there are over 100 other Movies by Minute podcasts available at MoviesByMinutes.com. Please join us here next time on the Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.